Welcome to On the Ballot with Ballotpedia, where we take a closer look at the week's top political stories. Ballotpedia connects people to politics by providing neutral, nonpartisan, and reliable information on our government, how it works, and where it's headed. We're here to give you the facts so you can form your own opinion. I'm Victoria Rose, and thanks for being with us. Today, we've got a very special roundtable to unpack the end of some of this year's state legislative sessions. I'm joined by three of Ballotpedia's finest, Ethan Rice from our marquee team. Hey, Ethan. Hi, Victoria. Joseph Greeny, who's also on our marquee team. Hey, Joe. Hi, Victoria. And then from our ballot measures team, aka my boss, is Ryan Byrne. Hi, Ryan. Hey, Victoria. I'm very excited for our discussion today, guys. This is a first here on Ballotpedia, a roundtable type of episode where we bring together staff from all across our newsroom and across the country because we are a remote workplace to break down the end of state legislative sessions by sharing your expertise, analysis, and perspectives. It'd be quite a big task if we did each legislative session separately. So we're just going to keep a big picture looking at trends, developments, and key issues that we're covering. That being said, I was wondering if we could start with each of you sharing how you've been covering the state legislative cycle and what you've been writing about specifically. I'll start with you, Ethan. So this uh, this cycle, I've been mainly focused on um, election-related legislation. So bills that deal with um, voting methods, voting security, primary systems, different election systems, and how how people are able to vote, the dates of elections, things like that. And also ESG, which is environmental, social, and governance policy that uh, mostly pertains to state investments and the use of certain criteria based on environmental considerations, um, social considerations like uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, and so those are the two main main legislative topics that, uh, that I've been focusing on this year. And Joe, you do something similar, right? Yep, me and Ethan uh, share a team. Um, I cover election legislation alongside Ethan and some other members of our marquee team. Like Ethan, we've been looking at changes uh, year on year in general topics around election administration. Some specifics include ranked choice voting, absentee voting administration, changes to the funding of elections, and a lot more. And looking forward to getting into some of that. And how about you, Ryan? Ballot measures can be put on the ballot by legislatures or citizen groups, but since we're talking about legislative sessions, I'm going to try to just talk about legislators and what they've done this session. A big thing with legislative referrals is constitutional amendments. So that's been a lot of our work lately is covering state constitutional amendments that voters are going to decide either this year, a few states do vote during odd numbered years, and a good number for next year. Solid. Well, we're recording this roundtable on June 7th as a heads up for our listeners. So where are we at in terms of how many states have completed their legislative sessions and how many have yet to adjourn? Yeah, I can hop in there. Um, As of uh, June 6th, so just yesterday, we've got 27 states that are adjourned for the year. There is a possibility that some of those states will open up special sessions before the end of the year, but most of them are going to be fully wrapped up by this point. We've currently got four other states in special sessions and then 19 still in their regular session. So we're a little bit past that halfway point, uh, both in the year and in state legislative sessions. Most of the work has, has been done at this point, but there's definitely some uh, some loose threads and some stuff that will be wrapped up between now and the end of the year. Got it. Well, let's dive right into that election legislation tracking that we've been doing here at Ballotpedia over the last year or so. Let's start with those bills and compare them to 2022 and 2023. Have there been any notable trends you've observed in terms of the number and or sponsorship of election-related bills enacted this year? We've definitely seen um, some, some some differences between this year and last year. Overall, this year, we've had more enacted bills than last year. We've had 175 election-related bills enacted so far this year. And at this point last year, we had 156 
Um, you can also see a, a difference in, in partisanship of enacted bills. Republicans sponsored more of the enacted bills this year than last year. In both years, Republicans sponsored more bills than Democrats, but the number of Democrat-sponsored bills that have been enacted has remained nearly the same between this year and last year, but Republican-sponsored bills have increased somewhat. We've had uh, 107 of the the uh, 175 enacted bills this year have been sponsored by Republicans, while last year, 83 of the bills were sponsored by Republicans. So pretty good increase there. Democratic-sponsored bills, uh, we've had 33 this year and 32 last year. So that's remained about the same. And do we have any inkling as to why they've increased year over year, like the total number of enacted bills and then for the Republican sponsored bills? There's a lot of factors that go into that. Um, I think, you know, we could look at it through terms of topic. There are certain topics in which Republicans generally sponsor more bills than Democrats. And especially in this legislative session, you know, each, each year, uh, as you have different topics that are in the media more or different topics that legislators are really focused on, you have changes in the topic area of bills, like the amount of bills enacted in, in each topic area, which I think we're going to uh, get into a little later on. That makes sense. Which states have the highest number of enacted bills this year? And what are the main areas covered by these bills? So right now, the state with the highest number of election-related bills um, is Tennessee. And there's been 17 bills enacted so far. A uh, close second there is South Dakota with 16 enacted bills. And the subjects covered by these bills vary um, quite a bit, but there's some subjects that account for a large portion in each state. Uh, for example, in Tennessee, more than half of the bills that have been enacted deal in some way with contest-specific procedures. And those are bills that do things like change the election procedures for municipalities or maybe change uh, a primary system. Um, so for instance, you might have a change in, in, in date in a primary system or a primary election rather. Um, you might have changes in voting methods, um, changes to the, the date by, by which candidates uh, must file to, to be on the ballot. And in South Dakota, the most active bill topic has been counting and certification, which just deals with the tallying and, uh, and certification of ballots. Uh, so that's a, a kind of an interesting trend there that we you know, can identify those specific bill topics is making up the most uh, enacted bills in these states that have the most enacted bills. When we look at election-related legislation across the country, uh, the bill subject with the most activity by far this year has been contest-specific procedures. We can see that uh, the, the category of ballot access, which deals with uh, how candidates get their name on the ballot, has had the highest level of bipartisan support, while the ratio of, of Democrat and Republican sponsorship or some of the other topics is kind of remain the same as far as in proportion to last year. Interesting. So it's more just procedural policies that are being passed or enacted in these states. Yeah, like I said, I mean, there, there's a pretty wide variety of, of topics. Um, there's a lot of, of those enacted bills that are on subjects that no other bills have been enacted on uh, or that no other enacted bills deal with. But, uh, but yeah, I think um, those two definitely contest-specific procedures is, is something that kind of encompasses a large array of, of changes to election policy, ballot access as well. For those one-off bills, are there any notable subjects that come to mind that they deal with, like ranked choice voting or public money for elections? We have had some really some some interesting uh, activity in uh, some, some different various topics like that, election funding. Um, one thing that uh, we uh, did some analysis on earlier in the year was 
ballot Dropbox sites, um, which has been a, a topic with an increasing amount of activity over the, the past few years. Um, and that just relates to in the states where ballot drop boxes are allowed, there are a lot of bills regulating how that works, when uh, they should be dropped off, who gets to collect them, things of that nature. Very interesting. Switching gears here to ESG, what has the legislative action look like for ESG policies? So we've seen some some pretty similar trends in ESG as in election legislation. We've had both more introduced legislation this year uh, than last year, as well as more enacted bills. We've had 36 enacted ESG bills this year um, compared to 12 at this point last year. In 2023, um, this year, Democrats have uh, sponsored six of those enacted bills, while 24 have been sponsored by Republicans. In 2022, there were four Democratic-sponsored bills enacted and five Republican-sponsored bills. So we've seen a pretty significant increase in the amount of Republican-sponsored ESG bills this year um, compared to last year. Um, so that's definitely uh, a trend. That's interesting. And where have we seen the most ESG bills enacted? The topic area with the, the most overall activity this year has been in ESG criteria, um, which is a, a topic that kind of includes uh, the bills that prohibit investments based on ESG considerations and bills that require divestment from companies that use ESG criteria. Uh, a large portion of those have been Republican-sponsored bills. As far as the states that we've seen the most enacted legislation in, that would be um, Arkansas and Virginia. We've had four uh, enacted bills in each of those states. Great. Well, returning to election policy, Ryan, I know we've also seen a couple ballot measures related to elections that were certified by state legislatures this cycle. So what sort of policies are they proposing? Yeah, election policy ballot measures have been a prominent issue for several years now. Looking at the 2023 legislative sessions, we have seen some movement by state legislators. So in Connecticut, the legislators approved an amendment to allow for no excuse absentee voting. Now, in a lot of states, something like that might be passed by statute instead of constitutional amendment. But due to how the Connecticut Constitution is currently worded, in order to enact no excuse absentee voting, which means being able to vote absentee ballots without needing an excuse like being sick or out of town or something. In Connecticut, the Constitution would need to be amended. Voters will decide that in November 2024. Now, another election issue that we often see come out of legislatures, which we saw again this session, were ballot measures about ballot measures in a sense. So the ballot initiative process is really a state-based system. And every state that has an initiative process has a very different process um, in a lot of ways. State constitutions often govern this process. So in order to change the process, you have to change the constitution. So we saw action in two states, Ohio and North Dakota. So in Ohio, the legislature passed an amendment that would actually require a 60% supermajority vote on future constitutional amendments. That's actually on the ballot in August. So it could affect, if voters approve it, that 60% supermajority requirement would affect amendments in November. And there's likely to be an abortion-related constitutional amendment in November. So there's been a lot of you know contention back and forth between this August vote and that potential November vote. And then in North Dakota, legislators passed an amendment that would require voters to approve citizen-initiated constitutional amendments twice. So at two elections, there's actually one state that already requires that. That's Nevada, where it has to be passed uh, two elections in a row. 
Very interesting. Well, as our listeners probably know, I'm from Texas, so I uh, take every opportunity I can to talk about Texas. So we're going to stick with ballot measures and talk about Texas ballot measures. So can you discuss some of the key constitutional amendments referred to the ballot in Texas and their potential implications for voters? Right. So Texas is always a big one in odd numbered years like 2023 or 2021, uh, whatever the next one is, 2025. Uh, So in Texas, the legislature uh, meets during odd numbered years, right? And they can actually refer constitutional amendments to those odd numbered year November ballots. So Texas often has the most constitutional amendments on the ballot of any state during an odd numbered year. So during this regular session, they actually referred 13 constitutional amendments, which voters will decide on November 7th. That said, there could be more than 13. Uh, They currently are in special session. There could be more special sessions potentially. Um, So they could put more on the ballot. But during the regular legislative session, they put 13 on the ballot. Now, 13 might seem like a lot, but 297 were actually filed. So 13 is just 4.4% of those total proposed during this session. And why you don't see more, even more than 13 on the ballot, right, uh, is because a two-thirds vote is required in each legislative chamber. So that's the Senate and the House, uh, two-thirds of the votes. So Republicans control the legislature in Texas, but they don't have a supermajority in either chamber. So at least some Democratic votes are required to refer amendments to get to that two-thirds threshold. And what were some of the policies proposed by these constitutional amendments? Right. So some of the ones that made the ballot, in fact, the one that was had the most division between Republicans and Democrats, but still enough Democrats got on board to put it on the ballot was a uh, constitutional amendment to prohibit a wealth tax. Texas doesn't currently have such a tax, but as a constitutional amendment, it would be harder to change. Uh, so voters adopt it. You know, there can't ever be a wealth or net income tax unless the Constitution is amended again. Other measures that we saw that will be featured on the ballot this November include a state constitutional right to farming and ranching, increasing the retirement age for judges, creating a state park trust fund, creating a new energy fund, and a property tax exemption for child care facilities. There were a bunch that didn't make the ballot. We do follow them closely, especially once they pass one chamber. So about 32 passed one chamber, and again, only 13 made the ballot. We saw some fun issues there, and by fun, I just mean fun to cover, you know, things that would have drawn a lot of attention in November that didn't ultimately make the ballot. Things around citizenship and voting, things about state constitutional rights for parents uh, around education and those types of matters, but those ones didn't make the ballot. Another topic we're still watching from last year is abortion on the ballot, and we saw some noteworthy constitutional activity in several states. So can you share some insight into the constitutional amendments put on the ballot? in Maryland and New York during their 2023 legislative sessions. Yeah, so like in 2022, abortion continues to be an issue for ballot measures, and I think it will for a while. Uh, You know, last last year there were six measures, five of which were constitutional amendments. Uh, Three of them were to establish state constitutional rights to abortion. California, Michigan, and Vermont, they were all approved. Two were kind of related to preempting courts finding such a right in state constitutions, uh, Kentucky and Kansas, for example, and both of those were defeated. We definitely expect to see more action on that constitutional right side of the issue in Democratic-controlled states like Maryland and New York, uh, where they have placed those amendments on the ballot. Now, I said I would only talk about legislative referrals, but in Ohio, I mentioned this a little bit ago, there could be a citizen-initiated amendment on the ballot this November related to abortion. Like you said um, in your response, Maryland and New York are Democratic-controlled states, and we often see how what we call trifecta status can impact legislative outcomes. So going back to election-related legislation, have you noticed, uh, Joe or Ethan, any changes in the trifecta status of bills and enacted bills this year compared to the previous year? 
We've seen about the same uh, percentage of bills um, in each trifecta status and also in, in divided governments. So between 2023 and 2022, uh, we've had a, about the same number, about 43% of bills introduced in Democratic trifecta states, about 45% in Republican trifecta states, and divided governments making up the last uh, 12%. It, it plays a big role in, in shaping the the fate of a lot of these bills um, and you can really see that in the vetoed bills that we've looked at this year yeah let's take a closer look at vetoes one outlier it seems is arizona's democratic governor katie hobbs who has rejected quite a few bills in her state this cycle what's the story there yeah, we've seen Governor Katie Hobbs in Arizona veto a disproportionate number of bills compared to other states this year. Part of that definitely comes down to the trifecta status of the state right now. Um, Arizona is currently a divided government state. Republicans control both houses of the legislature while Democrats control the governorship. You see that uh, this sort of a setup, uh, a trifecta setup that lends itself to a disproportionate amount of vetoes. One of the other leading veto states is Nevada, uh, which is just the, the same setup, but inverse. Democrats control both houses of the legislature. Republicans control the governorship. Some of the stuff that we've seen vetoed in Arizona, we've seen passed elsewhere this session. For example, bans or prohibitions on the use of ranked choice voting, which were enacted in three Republican trifecta states this year. Those states are Montana, Idaho, and South Dakota. And then just another interesting nugget, looking at vetoes in trifecta states, we actually did see a uh, potential ban prohibition on ranked choice voting vetoed in a Republican trifecta state. That was North Dakota. And then elsewhere, we also saw an interesting veto in another Republican trifecta state in Wyoming, a bill that would have prohibited delivery of absentee ballot request forms by anyone other than a specific list of government officials or employees was vetoed. And that was a bit unexpected. But, you know, we've seen a little a little bit of pushback in some Republican trifecta states from governors on uh, some initiatives that are originating in the legislature. Those are very interesting examples. Something governors can veto are legislatively referred constitutional amendments. So trifecta status is not critical if one party has the votes to refer a measure to the ballot, like Ryan was saying. So Ryan, what other action did we see related to state constitutions this legislative session? Yeah. So, you know, while the contentious constitutional amendments, you know, the ones where legislative Democrats and Republicans split tend to get the most attention, you know, the majority of constitutional amendments actually receive unanimous or close to unanimous support from legislative members of both parties. So one such issue that we saw this legislative session was the language used to describe people. You know, state constitutions were written a long time ago. They often contain language that uh, members of both parties, you know, kind of uh, don't necessarily feel super comfortable with. So they're seeking to change it in several states. So in South Dakota, the legislature passed an amendment to change male pronouns to gender neutral terms or titles. So this is changing things like describing the governor instead of describing the governor like uh, as a he, uh, just changing the word to the governor. So instead of he has the power to, the governor has the power to. In North Dakota and Nevada, legislators referred amendments dealing with how mental illnesses are described changing language like insane to uh, phrases like individuals with mental illnesses. Another issue which, you know, we see every single election cycle is property taxes. So a lot of states, such such as Texas or, uh, say, Louisiana uh, neighboring, a lot of the property tax matters are embedded in the state constitution. So whenever you want to change something about the property taxes, you need a constitutional amendment. So I mentioned earlier that in Texas... Uh, an amendment was passed to authorize a property tax exemption for childcare facilities. 
Uh, we saw something really similar passed in Missouri. So this is definitely something that we see developing with property tax exemptions as states try to kind of encourage more child care facilities or, or decrease the cost for child care facilities. Yeah, these policies aren't that controversial, but it's kind of still interesting to see that they trend across the states, even though they're pretty not controversial, like tax exemptions and things like that. As we mentioned before, there are still a handful of states wrapping up their legislative sessions. But at this point in time, what are some of the biggest takeaways we've seen from this year and and sort of what can we see next year's legislative sessions? Yeah, I can hop in there. I think a lot of what we've seen, I'd love to have Ethan elaborate on, on what I offer here as well as we cover a lot of the same stuff. But a lot of what we've seen on um, the election related in the election related legislation bucket are, um, in my view, there are continued sort of cleanups of issues that came to the fore really around the 2020 election, which obviously was a highly contentious election for a lot of different reasons. Um, but we've seen a lot of states, uh, even bipartisan action, uh, addressing election workers and volunteers, either creating protections for election workers or volunteers, better defining the role of election workers and volunteers, trying to adjust compensation for election workers and volunteers. Uh, we've also seen enacted legislation across a number of states on issues like electioneering and providing new penalties for certain behavior around both both in-person electioneering and then electioneering around drop boxes, which again is not an issue that I think many people had on their radar before 2020. And then some of those other issues that fit into what I sort of look at as continued cleanup or sort of work around the edges of these issues that came to the fore in 2020 are private funding of elections. We've seen a number of states, a few other states join a group of over 20 states that prohibited or severely limited the private funding of elections, which which is sort of what that looks like is mostly donations through nonprofits made to state election agencies for the purposes of election administration. There was a big push post-2020 to eliminate that sort of funding for election administration. And we've seen a number of states that enacted legislation in previous sessions clean up um, their enacted statute. That happened in Mississippi and Georgia this session, for example. And then we've seen other states work to try and enact new bans on the private funding election, such as in South Dakota. Ethan, anything that, that you'd like to add there? Yeah, I, um, I definitely agree that we've we've seen a lot of, of bills that are clarifying existing statutes that were passed in previous years. Um, as Joe mentioned, drop boxes, uh, absentee ballot drop boxes are a good example of this. A lot of states in previous years enacted legislation that allowed for ballots to be dropped off at these boxes. But what you see now is a lot of, of legislation trying to clarify, okay, when you know, should these boxes be um, open or open to the public to to have the, the ballots returned to them? Who gets custody of the ballots? Uh, is there monitoring of the you know the, the the chain of custody of the ballots as they're taken from the box to the, the counting um, facility? Same thing with um, security measures and counting and certification measures. There's been a lot of, of sort of tweaks um, to those. Uh, pieces of, of legislation that were, were already um, tweaks to statutes that already existed with with new bills sort of making small modifications um, here and there. We've also seen some kind of new categories of legislation that uh, have actually um, prompted us to kind of expand our, our analysis of, of categories of, of legislation. We've seen, for instance, bills dealing with conflicts between levels of government um, so the preemption of say a, a state government being able to, or a state government being able to preempt a local government from enacting its own, uh, legislation related to their election procedures. 
um, wherein the state government's policies supersede anything that a municipal government uh, could do, for instance. So some of those those interesting kind of uh, new categories that we're looking at. Um, I can also speak a little bit to ESG, uh, and I think there's been some some pretty interesting trends there. As part of our analysis of those bills, we've gone through and tried to identify overall which bills expressly are uh, opposed to ESG and which bills uh, sort of support the use of, of ESG criteria. And what we see there is that there are a lot more bills being introduced this year that oppose ESG um, than there were last year in comparison to bills supporting ESG. So we've had 92 bills opposing ESG introduced this year uh, compared to 53 supporting ESG. Last year, we had 47 bills opposing and 45 supporting. Um, so you know, it, last year, you had a, a pretty even distribution, whereas this year, you have a, a much larger amount of, of ESG legislation um, that's, that's opposing those standards. So I think something that explains that trend in more uh, uh, bills opposing ESG this year is just the, the sort of progression of, of that legislation overall. In early 2020, on that legislative session, we had a lot of bills that were implementing um, ESG criteria, um, requiring uh, state uh, financial officers to consider those criteria when investing state funds. Um, but what you've seen over the past three years is there's an increasing sort of backlash to to those bills. And so you have a larger number of bills now that are repealing or otherwise opposing those uh, required considerations in a large amount of states. Yeah, those are some really interesting trends. How about on the legislative referral front, Ryan? Is there anything we're watching for? So this is always a fun topic. So we mentioned uh, some of the trends that we've seen and continue to see and will continue to see abortion and direct democracy being two of the biggest ones. Uh, Some of the other issues that we're kind of seeing develop and uh, it's easy to forget this because it's June, but just a couple of months ago, Wisconsin actually voted on constitutional amendments that were part of the 2023 legislative session. One of those was related to bail. And I think we're seeing the issue of bail and the laws governing bail uh, come up more. I believe there was one in Texas that did pass one chamber, but then ultimately didn't make the ballot. One of my favorite topics, and we don't often view this as a trend, uh, but perhaps you could consider it such, is state constitutional rights. So state constitutional rights to abortion, we've already discussed, but there's always state constitutional rights that people vote on, you know, kind of that aren't really part of a subject trend, but are kind of like a one-off thing, but they're still related to the issue of state constitutional rights. And state constitutional rights are important because they kind of, you know, if you if you feel that that right has been violated, you now can sue and they can address various issues. Just a couple of years ago, there was one in Maine to establish a state right to produce food. That's pretty interesting. So thinking about this year, uh, heading into next year, right, we mentioned Texas right to farming. Uh, voters in Florida will vote on a right to hunt and fish. Another one for 2023 that we haven't mentioned was in Louisiana, establishing a state constitutional right to, in quotes, worship in a church or other place of worship, uh, which some of the supporters proposed kind of in response to various COVID-related uh, regulations. In California, they're considering creating a state constitutional right to marriage, regardless of gender. Obviously, that would reveal uh, Prop 8 from, I guess, uh, more than a decade back now. And of course, as I mentioned, issues related to the constitutional rights for parents, you know, on various matters, education, more 
broad terms like upbringing, things like that are issues that I'm sure we're going to see more later this year and more heading into next year. Great. Well, thank you all for your time. We really appreciate your insight on the legislative sessions that occurred this year. And that's all I have for this week's episode of On the Ballot. Make sure you don't miss an episode by subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Victoria Rose, and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.